Hello and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where students interview the experts who have contributed to the festival. We try to pair up students and researchers from very different disciplines to bring things back to basics. There are no stupid questions here. This year's theme is power in all its forms, from nuclear energy to medieval saints, from the history of money to the biology of extraordinary animals. I'm Beth King and I'm studying for an MPhil in Classics and today I'm interviewing Susanna, Michael and Hugh about nuclear energy. Um, so to get things started, uh, would you like to just introduce yourselves and how you got into nuclear energy? Um, hi, I'm Susanna and I'm currently studying for a PhD um, in nuclear materials. So I, I particularly got interested in nuclear during my undergraduate um, and have since just become quite interested in the industry through working our Centre for Doctoral Training, our CDT, which is based in nuclear. Um, hi, my name is Michael Salvini. I'm a second year PhD student at the University of Bristol in mechanical engineering. Um, my research is mostly surrounding sort of computational modelling of uh, nuclear materials. So that's like structural components in reactors. Um, yeah. Hi, I'm Hugh Dorwood. I'm also at the University of Bristol with Michael um, in the same research group, looking at, again, uh, nuclear materials. Uh, particularly my project is looking at applications for uh, machine learning within nuclear materials. Um, and I'm also part of the nuclear CDT, which I kind of just got into by learning a bit more about nuclear over lockdown um, and decided to apply for a PhD. Great. I know very little about nuclear energy. Most of the stuff I do is 2,000 years ago, if not more. Um, so your science fair section is about the future of nuclear energies, right? First, though, I thought it might be interesting to talk about the path of nuclear energy. Um, and how nuclear science has developed in the last the last few years. Yeah, I guess I can um, start. A lot of the focus of our Centre for Doctoral Training um, is in what's known as Generation 4 Reactor Technologies. And this came out of a forum, um, I think sometime in the 2000s, to identify what were going to be the kind of future reactor types to tackle um, things seen as issues within uh, nuclear energy production. Um, what's quite interesting about those reactor technologies is a lot of them aren't actually particularly new. Um, a lot of them based off experiments in the early days of nuclear power in, in the 50s and the 60s and things. Um, and it's just that with things such as advanced materials, um, scaling those up has seemed to be more attractive or more feasible now. I don't know if Michael or Susanna have anything to add to that. Yeah, or... I was going to say just to add to that, that sort of nuclear power, particularly in countries like the UK, has been around for many, many years. So um, even at this point, we're trying to extend the life of reactors beyond their sort of 60 year um, limit that was initially given, but we've got new technologies, new materials, it means we can extend those lives even further. So nuclear power isn't necessarily a new thing. Um, for example, even there's nuclear fission happening on the sun and has been for billions and billions of years. Um, so, but um, 
the interesting thing about moving forward in the future is that we can make it even more efficient. We can make it um, even more of a, a viable energy source for, for more and more people. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of just worth uh, outlining that ultimately nuclear power and nuclear energy is is all about coming up with us at the at the end of the day a more advanced kettle. Um, ultimately, we're just looking to to heat water to create steam to turn a turbine and generate electricity, much in the same way that we have been for you know a hundred years now. Um, and like you said, it's it's quite often we we end up using and recycling the same you know these same ideas and these same principles that come through. Um, and actually, what especially now with the kind of future technologies that are coming around, it's all about yeah refinement and you know. There are there are issues that we want to solve, you know, relating to how long we can run them for, and so we we develop newer materials and newer techniques um, in order to try and go about um, improving that. And you know that that kind of covers the entire every aspect of the of a nuclear power station's life cycle. So that's you know from the from the very early design to uh, to the you know initial operations to you know the issue of waste, um, the issue of decommissioning. Um, and so it kind of encompasses all of those things, um, which is, I guess, as well as so much exciting research going on these days. Yeah, I think that issue of waste is obviously a really important one. So can you explain for a, a complete novice um, how how nuclear waste is produced and why it's so tricky to deal with? So. Uh, we kind of have a, a few different types of nuclear waste. Um, so that might include, for example, uh, things like structural components in your reactor, the thing that's actually holding all of your fuel and the reaction itself. Um, and then you might have a different type of waste like the, you know, kind of uh, containment equipment. And that might be, you know, the day to day equipment used by staff in operations and things like that. And then I guess you've got, you know, the the one that everyone's um up in arms about or thinking about all the time is is the fuel itself um and so what you know typically what will happen is your you know your fuel at the end of your life cycle might be you know removed from your reactor um and you know stored or vitrified in, in glass and ceramics and then those might be you know set for you know deep geological uh, disposal potentially um but i think it's it's always worth mentioning that actually um, although the amount the, the waste itself can be can be very very harmful, that the actual quantity of waste that we're producing um, in these operations uh, kind of really very much scales with the sort of um, how serious it is. So you know your your low level waste you might have a decent amount of it, but actually it's pretty pretty uh, very low levels of radiation be given off that whereas the real sort of high level stuff that people are really are concerned about actually if you took uh, the amount of high level waste um, that is produced by a reactor and if, if we use that to power the entirety of the uk for an entire person's lifespan the amount of high level waste that each of us would be kind of responsible for as it were um, is about the size of your fist um, so it's it's a very interesting problem in that it's it's serious stuff that has to be handled with care, but actually, you know, the entire power um, power need of the UK could kind of fit inside of a room, um, and quite a large room. But it's 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 an interesting prospect when we, especially, compare that to kind of how much attention these sorts of issues get when we kind of discuss them in public. Yeah, 
yeah, it's definitely one of the one of the main issues I've heard about, and that's from a very fringe perspective. Um, but it is an issue that is, or it seems at least, quite scary. So that's in some ways reassuring to know that it can, that it's it's not as much waste as people make it seem. But um, it does still seem like a an issue that is only going to get bigger if there's if we do turn to nuclear energy more as you know maybe we should then surely the waste is just going to keep keep growing and that's going to be a, a growing problem rather than a, a problem that plateaus yeah i think um if i can jump in i think one of the one important thing to note is um we hear a lot about uh the UK's waste at Sellafield, um, uh, the vast a majority of that is legacy wastes, um, a lot of it not even related to civil nuclear energy generation. Um, it's from the UK's nuclear weapons programme in the 40s and 50s. Um, the way that reactors run now uh, in the UK, we've moved to what's known as a closed fuel cycle. So the fuel that comes out of the reactor at the end of its life is um, put straight into containment and is sent straight to um, storage. And then in the future, the plan is for that to go into deep geological disposal. Um, and Michael mentioned the, the kind of scale of that one person's, I've heard it as one person's waste for their lifetime of it in a Coke can. Um, I think the other thing, the, one of the reasons that we talk about waste in the nuclear industry a lot is because the nuclear energy industry is actually one of the few uh, industries to actually consider its waste through its whole life because it has to. Um, oil and gas industry, for example, doesn't. Um, because if you think of a Coke can full of high-level um, high spent fuel compared to... Uh, all the tons of CO2 that would be equivalent from oil or gas um, that's not considered by oil and gas, for example. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it about, like that about other industries not thinking about waste and just pumping it out into the air and it doing even more damage. Um, so what was the um, something logical is that putting the waste underground sorry um yes um so it's the the plan is the the idea is that it's um yes it's deep geological disposal and um unfortunately none of us are working on a kind of waste end of the uh nuclear cycle in our projects um there are people in the group who do um but this is to do with burying the stuff deep underground where there's lots of, of barriers um, to prevent there being any radiological contamination. Um, and this is through uh, lots of different materials, lots of different layers of protection, um, concrete, clays, and then it's buried very deep underground. Um, it's There's been plans in the UK for developing it. I think uh, it's either Sweden or Finland, one of the, I think it's Finland, um, has quite advanced um, concepts and development going on into storing it. 
Um, and I'm not I, I'm not sure on the actual depths that people look to bury it. Um, I'm not sure if Susanna or Michael know. No, I was I was going to say I'm not exactly sure about the depth, but someone in our CDT, I know um, Tom, who's working on this, will be at the Cambridge Festival and is willing to talk about it. Um, but I know he's particularly looking at sort of vitrifying the waste. So that means sort of encasing in glass, as mentioned before. And the thing is, what he has to do is prove that during the time that it takes that waste to get down to sort of background levels of radiation. So sort of the, the radiation levels that we experience every day from natural sources like granite or um, just naturally occurring um, minerals and, and rocks in the environment. Um, he has to make sure that the vitrified waste um, can basically um, be contained for that, that length of time. So there's a lot of development into how we can encase the waste until it gets down to sort of safe levels or everyday levels that we're used to. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, especially as a classicist. I spend a lot of time thinking of or digging up things buried thousands of years ago. So that's, that's an interesting area of it for me. Um, but maybe now it might be good to look more at, at the future of nuclear energy. Um, you talked about how uh, a lot of the technology is from the 50s and 60s. How is it changing now for the future? What are the, what are the main aims going forward? Um, I think one of the, one of the big things people are looking at is um, alternative uses of nuclear beyond just producing um, heat for electricity production. Um, and if you can, one big um, advantage of nuclear power is if you can get higher efficiencies, higher output temperatures, um, you can get temperatures which mean uh, harder to decarbonize areas in industry, such as things like steel production, producing hydrogen, um that becomes feasible um from one of these kind of very high temperature nuclear reactor um options uh, these and these are obviously currently very high carbon intensive things this is what requires um the coking coal which uh this new proposed coal mine in cumbria um i think was to, to provide coke and coal for the steel industry. Um, so that's one big advantage if these technologies can get to these high temperatures. Um, another is potentially um, using fuel more efficiently. So being able to either look at different fuel cycles, because it's, traditionally it's the uranium fuel cycle, um, which requires um, uranium 238 and 235. Um, but potentially some of these reactors could look at uh, thorium fuel cycle. Um, and thorium is extremely abundant. So there's lots of lots of years of fuel potentially available if reactors can work using a thorium cycle. Would thorium be safer than uranium? Is that a, a consideration there? Well, you're you're sort of 
the, the way that your thorium fuel cycle works is that you are essentially loading thorium into your into your reactor and it will uh, from that you then then produce other um, fissile isotopes so you might your thorium can then be converted to uranium um, within your reactor so the the idea is that uranium you know there's a I think if we stepped up our supply and production of uranium um, we'd have about enough uranium to to kind of power and to meet global demand for I think it's the next sort of hundred years or so um, whereas you know, in in theory, if you you know if you're able to switch to a thorium fuel cycle, you'd be looking at you know potentially a thousand years or um, several hundred years of of enough um, fuel for to meet global energy demand. Um, so that's the kind of real big um, big advantage of that. And of course, you know, with a large supply of of these types of fuels out there, um, that can then also you know potentially bring down cost um, later on down the line. So I think that's a that's a big um, appeal for why for why certain countries are certainly looking to, looking into that. I know uh, I think India are very interested in thorium fuel cycles mainly because they have some of the largest thorium reserves in the world. Um, but it's it's certainly a, an interesting way of of doing things a little bit differently. And on a on a maybe more basic level, where does where does the thorium come from? How how does that how is that obtained? Why do some countries have more and some countries have less? Yeah, I think we could really do with the, one of the geologists on here now. Um, but like uranium, it's um, mined from from ores in the ground. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, my 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 geology isn't has, has never been particularly good. But um, for the same reasons that there's there's distributions in uranium and other all sorts of um, elements in the Earth's crust that leads to this kind of um, heterogeneity and where where they can be found um, on earth yeah i think the the one of the sort of advantages that you sometimes see with with nuclear fuels at least compared to sort of oil and gas and fossil fuels is that the way that they're these kind of things are distributed across across the earth very differently to how um, fossil fuel reserves are you know fossil fuels form you know places that used to be seabeds or lake beds and that's where you can kind of get these deposits of oil and, and gas and, and things like that whereas the way that um nuclear fuels and elements like uranium and thorium are distributed they kind of form from you know from when our our planet first formed you know four and a half billion years ago um you know those kind of clouds of uh, rock and and gas and dust um that have kind of coalesced into a planet and what it means is that actually yeah you get this very homogeneous distribution of these elements around the world so for example if you look at um, uranium distribution um, you find that uh, there's no you know there's no single country that has you know 50 60 percent of um, of uranium supply um, and you certainly don't see it concentrated in um, you know 10 or 12 countries around the world like you might do with with oil and gas um, so it's even just from from that sort of perspective, um, it's it's kind of seen as maybe slightly more uh, stable because you're not relying on, um, you know, currently politically unstable regions in the world um, to supply your, your fuel. Um, you know, for example, Australia and Canada have very large supplies of, of uranium. Um, even the UK as well, I think. I think there were quite large um, uranium mines down in, in Cornwall. 
yeah and just even building off that something quite interesting that I heard was that because there are these these large stores sometimes we get basically what we call natural fission reactors going on so if that's sort of some uranium compressed underground I think they've seen it in America a few times where basically what we're doing artificially in reactors occurs naturally as well they see the production of the similar isotopes that we see in reactors so all based on quite a natural process so then the the idea of the reactor is to or the research unit is to recreate that natural reaction um that makes it sound very yeah very sustainable and stable um and nothing at all like the the kind of uh disaster prone outlook on nuclear energy that I think you see quite a lot in the media and kind of popular imagination. For the festival on Saturday, what can people expect to find um, and to learn from from you guys? Well, I think it's a it's a chance to kind of meet some of the uh, the young researchers who are who are kind of stepping up into this field. Um, so you can, you know, you can feel free to come and talk to us. We've all got areas of, you know, what some, some of us might call expertise. I'm, I'm not sure whether you'll have to come and decide that for yourself. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, we've got a research interests in a whole wide range. So that's, yeah, from designs to modeling to waste and decommissioning. Um, and that's whether you want to talk to us about our research or, you know, talk to us about nuclear energy as a whole. Um, if you disagree with the idea of it, if you think it's, you know, the best thing since sliced bread, um, uh, I, yeah, come and kind of engage with it and, and learn a little bit more. Um, and then outside of that, we've, you know, we've kind of got some little activities and demonstrations to try and um, maybe teach people a few things that they might not have known about, about how maybe how a nuclear reactor works and, um you know, we there's a lot of always a lot of talk about um, reactors being critical uh, and subcritical and supercritical, um, but actually, criticality is is not such a, a terrifying term as uh, hopefully people will find out if they come along. I've got to admit, I've never heard criticality used in a in a context like that. What does that mean? Uh, well, I think I think critical. You know, it's, you know, most people's daily lives is is not. It's quite a terrifying term if something's critical, um, but it basically just means that the reactor is is operating normally, essentially. Um, so if you're the keeping criticality is just making sure the reactor is um, functioning, you know, the same amount of, of power is coming out consistently over time um, and that actually it's stable and easy to control. In, in kind of lay terms, I think. Yeah, and just to add to what you can sort of expect at the festival, um, we've kind of put it in in the terms of a sort of um, fun fair theme. So to try and present nuclear, maybe from a different side, sort of in a way you maybe haven't seen before. Um, so there's traditional things like um, hooker duck, coconut shy style thing, but all with a nuclear take on it. So um, you can learn a bit more about shielding um, used in reactors through a coconut shy. Um, and activities like that so hopefully to uh, dispel some myths and also give um, a bit of an insight into the nuclear industry but in a, a way that's hopefully accessible to to most people and families as well that sounds great how does the how does the coconut shy 
um, replicate a nuclear reactor. Um, so sort of with a nuclear reactor, something you want to do as a similar way to the waste is contain um, any radiation that's produced during the reaction that's taking place. So we use um, special materials surrounding these reactors. Um, and the people who've set up this coconut shy, they, they do their research into these, these materials and can tell you more about them as well. But basically what we're trying to show is that some materials are more effective than others. Um, so you can give it a try, see, see if you can knock the coconuts off, um, depending on what sort of shielding's in place. And also understand a bit more about how we um, engineer materials to make sure any radiation that's produced can be contained inside. That sounds like a lot of fun. Which of the things at the festival that uh, relate to your areas of research? What do you, which are your your favourite bits of it? I mean, I can. So a lot of my work is is kind of in material properties and um, and things like that. And one of the things that I've been I've been putting together recently is uh, is a demonstration of it's something called a Prince Rupert drop, um, but it's it's basically a a kind of droplet of glass that you um, that you solidify in in cold water and it forms this kind of sort of tadpole shape object with a, with a really kind of long spindly tail uh, with some really really unusual properties. Um, so this is a this is a kind of tadpole shaped piece of glass that you can hit with a hammer. Um, and will just be absolutely fine. Um, and, you know, you can, I've seen people, you know, shoot them with bullets. You can, you know, drive over them, do all sorts of things, but it has this tiny long spindly tail. Whereas if you, if you kind of clip the tail even slightly, it just immediately explodes into kind of dust. Um, and it's, it's just the coolest demonstration I've ever seen live. Um, so as soon as I had the opportunity to kind of do it myself, um, I was I was definitely going to jump on that, um, and it's a it's a really interesting demonstration of uh, of something called residual stresses, um, which is something that forms in these glass when they they just kind of cool really really quickly. Um, that basically just means that this the kind of bulb of this tadpole is just really really strongly held together, but only on the outside and on the inside it's incredibly fragile, and so that kind of fragileness kind of extends into the tail so you get this really hard outside on your on this tadpole thing and then this really really fragile tail um, but it's just yeah it's a really cool thing to see in person yeah that's amazing that that sounds like magic um it, it kind of feels like that a little bit yeah <laughs> where's the where's the bit of the nuclear reactor energy chain that is like that sorry yeah well i was gonna say luckily this uh the nuclear aspect is not relating to the exploding, um, but uh, no. So, so a lot of what goes into kind of uh, material design in in these reactors is all about um, kind of taking advantage of all these material properties and ways of producing materials. Um, and so, the use of residual stresses um, and kind of learning how we can uh, produce materials that have these kind of very hard and are very um, strong materials that we can build our reactors with and knowing then that those can withstand all of the kind of conditions that are within a reactor um, is super important um, so it's a it's a it's a very cool demonstration of, of a property that is is kind of being used uh, all you know right across kind of materials engineering but in particular in nuclear energy yeah I, I would just add to that and say that all three of us I think are involved in particularly looking at stresses within materials 
and understanding the stress states within something. So sort of how where those high stresses are, where those low stresses are in the piece of material is really, really important to understand how it will behave. Um, and we can use sort of computational modeling. So using computer programs um, to simulate that as well as experiments in real life. Um, and so there's a lot of research into that, looking at things right down to sort of micro scales or even nano scales, that's sort of times 10 to the minus nine of the meter, um, right up to the macro scale. So what you can see with your eye as well. Um, so understanding how materials behave can be done on all length scales. And I think there's, um, touching on that kind of computational and the experimental side of, of material sciences that we look at, I think there might be a, an example of that on on Saturday, uh, based around the the kind of thermal hydraulic side, which is the um, the flow of the coolant water in a nuclear reactor. Um, there's a demonstration which has essentially an experimental rig with some um, bubbles forming, and I think some cool lights to to light up and demonstrate how the temperature changes. And then alongside that, there's a um, there'll be uh, a laptop showing a simulation of of the same thing to demonstrate how we can use these kind of computer experiments to predict and demonstrate what's going on inside uh, reactor systems or materials or or whatever. I don't know if it's possible to explain in simple terms, but how does the computer know what's going on inside the material? Um, so computer modeling, um, the key thing about it is sort of any model that's produced needs to be what we call validated. It needs to be checked against some sort of experimental result and then after that you can build up your confidence in it and then it can predict something that maybe you couldn't predict so easily through a physical experiment um, because you validated it with experiments that are available so basically sort of this computational modeling works in parallel with experiments so for example if you did a test on a piece of material and you found out how hard you need to sort of stress it or bend it in order for it to break, you can then feed that information into a computational model. Um, and then that could potentially tell you how that crack started in that material. So you can sort of use both experiment and computational modeling um, in tandem to understand the full picture of what's going on in a piece of material. Okay, so we've talked quite a lot now about the, the power of nuclear energy. Um, but the Cambridge Festival theme of power is more about, or is also about power more broadly. Um, and I'm guessing quite a lot of the power behind nuclear energy comes from the power of investment and the power of governments to do uh, different things with it. How does that, that power balance affect your research? What do you think about it? So probably something to always bear in mind is that nuclear reactors can be quite expensive. Um, that's all the fact surrounding them. Um, and often they take either government investment or some sort of hybrid investment between governments and a private investor. Um, and historically, that has been a bit of a problem for nuclear power, for example, um, because reactors can sometimes have fairly long lead times to be built or... Um, it initially, it looks like quite a large investment that will ultimately pay off. But um, you always have to explain to an investor that they will get their, their money back, but it might be in several 
potentially 10 years time. Um, and historically, that has been a problem with nuclear power, um, which is actually why. So at the moment, there's a lot of research into what we're calling SMRs, which are small modular reactors. And the idea of these reactors is they're much smaller. So you don't need such a large land area. They're much quicker to build because that's the modular idea, the idea that we can build lots of the same thing in specially designed factories. Um, so it makes it much easier to get sort of economies of scale through that sort of route. Um, and this is it's quite a new technology, but the sort of the fundamental processes that take place are things that we understand really well already. So this idea of scaling reactors down um, so they're sort of cheaper, easier to build um, is there's a, well, there's a lot of research going into that at the moment. And sort of as Hugh indicated before, the idea of these small modular reactors are that they could both provide power to for electricity purposes, but also potentially for industrial purposes like steel making as well. Um, so that's quite an interesting area going on at the moment. So where does most of the, the nuclear energy and power go to at the moment? Who's who's buying it? Currently, we're, we're buying an awful lot of it. Um, so I think... It, you know, we produce about sort of 15% um, of our kind of total energy demand of our own. Um, France, I believe, about there are there about, so about 70%. Um, and so, you know, in this kind of age of globalized energy markets, you know, we're buying an awful lot of nuclear energy, you know, nuclear electricity from, from France as it is. Um, the same kind of applies, you know, across Europe. I know uh, Germany, uh, very, very, hesitant towards building nuclear power stations, but they're more than happy to uh, to buy an awful lot of their power from France. Um, so, you know, at the moment, it's it's being primarily used for electricity production here in the UK. Um, but um, as kind of Hugh touched on earlier, it's the, the, the big advantage being that we can use the same technology, but kind of aim it in different directions. Um, so one idea with the small modular reactors is that, you know, a uh, a large, you know, steel steelworks might not have the need for a a Hinkley Point C sized reactor producing, um, high, you know, high temperature gases for steel making. But if they can have a kind of small modular reactor on site, shared between them and you know potentially a couple of other factories nearby, um, you can you can massively kind of decarbonize um, those industries um, and at, at a much lower expense. I think that the cost of Hinkley Point C is looking to be about 30, 30 billion pounds, um, the cost of one of these small modular reactors would be closer to two. Um, and so all of a sudden you're you're taking out this big um, kind of roadblock in the way um, of that kind of high upfront cost. Um, that means that not only can you build far more of them far quicker, but actually the, uh, the kind of industry and the kind of um, company and the size of investment means that far more people can kind of benefit from um, being able to build a small modular reactor and that's both in the UK and abroad I know there's um, uh, there are kind of deals and memorandums of understanding and things like that that are being written between various countries in Europe I think um, Poland and the Czech Republic have have recently cottoned on to the idea that small modular reactors might be a, a viable option for them. So that sounds like it's a very global project how how global is the research how much the does research from other countries come into your research um and what what's the communication like between the, the scientists 
fastest are terrible at talking across country borders. So it'd be interesting to see if it's different. Uh, well, as sorry, do you, you want to take that on? No, no, no. You, you crack on. That's fine. I was well. I was going to say, you know, scientists scientists love nothing more than uh, communicating across borders, especially if that if it means there's uh, trips and conferences involved. Um, nothing we love more than that. Um, but you know, traditionally, especially in kind of nuclear science, uh, communication has been on a far more limited scale. Um, we've always had companies and governments trying to protect um, information and research that's being done in the field of, of nuclear energy and nuclear engineering. Um, and, you know, you're seeing a little bit more, especially now that uh, we're starting to move to more uh, private companies being involved in uh, in nuclear power, that, that there's a little bit more, you know, communication um, and there's a little, more, little bit more cross-border um, control. So, you know, for example, in in my research group, we've got researchers who are being funded by um, French engineering authorities and nuclear authorities. Um, I do a little bit of my work with uh, EDF Energy, um, and I know that lots of um, large French engineering firms, because typically, um, as a result of so much of their energy supply coming from nuclear energy, France is is really one of the the leaders in in nuclear research. Um, so as a result, you know, there's there's always going to be a lot more um, cross-border communication between between scientists. Yeah, I think it's interesting going back. Um, obviously, we're all in this kind of materials research field, and sometimes the actual um, the funding and the CDTs through nuclear, but a lot of the work we do is is applicable beyond the nuclear industry. So in that regard, it's more sharing about our sharing information and research about our specific field um but touching back on the uh, small modular reactors there's there is i think a fair bit of sharing but it's a lot of these are done by private companies and i think it's seen as a bit of a um quite a it will be quite a good prize for the country who has the company that develops an smr that's going to be sold around the globe um and i think there's almost a bit of a a race which is driving innovation in the area um, to be the first because of these potentials of, of selling reactors to other countries across the globe. Right, so the competition sort of helps and hinders the different countries. Do you think the, the close connection to nuclear warfare with nuclear energy is also a contributing factor there? It's, it's certainly a, a sticky point when it comes to, to nuclear energy, um, not least in terms of the public perception. Um, so um, the the technologies themselves are, you know, very, very different, but the use, you know, there's there's a lot of similar terminology that that means you kind of ha- can't help, but it's, you know, escape that comparison, um, whether that's in the media or in just sort of public opinion or, in, you know, sometimes in policymaking as well. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of reactors nowadays are, and especially a lot of the kind of newer designs that people are, are researching today. Um, one of the big focuses is is non-proliferation, um, ensuring that uh, you know waste and fuel for these reactors can't be used in any way for for nuclear weapons. Um, and you know that's you know one of the one of the things that the UK has been going for of a, of a, of a closed fuel cycle and and looking at those kind of different things is ensuring that. 
the fuel then can't be turned into into nuclear weapons. Um, but it's it's certainly something that the uh, sort of the the energy industry has has really tried to distance itself from. Um, but you know how how much how successful that is kind of depends on the, I guess the person who's who's looking really. Yeah, I, I'd probably just add to that and say so with nuclear power, there's sort of two types of power. There's fusion, which is splitting stuff apart. Um, no, fusion, which is pushing stuff together, sorry. And there's fission, which is splitting stuff apart. And particularly the fusion side, this is exactly what goes on in the sun. Um, that side of the industry has managed to distance itself quite far from the, the concept of weapons, which are traditionally um, fission-based. And because of that, in terms of international cooperation, um, it's it's made great leaps. So there are sort of joint research ventures such as ITER, which is a, re, a research reactor currently be, being built in France. That's a collaboration between multiple different countries. Um, and so from, from that side of the nuclear industry, there's a lot of um, cooperation and um, it's very much seen as a, a, a viable energy source for the future. Um, but yeah, as Michael said, uh, it's very different sort of using nuclear power for energy purposes to the weapons purposes and the industry's made a lot of progression moving forward in terms of security and non-proliferation. That's that's very good to hear. I think I had probably assumed that nuclear energy research and the technology behind nuclear and atomic bombs and things went hand in hand. Um, but that's that's a good a good mythbuster. I think I guess very briefly, uh, if we're talking a bit about the politics around nuclear, um, I just add I guess that it's quite an exciting time uh, in nuclear research for um, for nuclear power generation at the moment. It seems in this country at least, both main political parties are quite committed and see it as uh, part of the future energy mix. Um, and at least for the moment, it looks like there's a lot of drive um, for development in it. So it's a very exciting field. Um, so if you want to come along and learn more about it and potential avenues to get into it, come along on Saturday to the Cambridge Science Festival and see us there. Yeah, I think the last thing I would just add is that you know, we can try and uh, address myths here, but actually, yeah, if anyone anyone listening has has a kind of burning question or something that they want dispelled or uh, anything like that, then yeah, best uh, best come along and and just have a chat with us. Um, you know, there's there's so many of us there with lots of you know diverse backgrounds who can, as a result, can kind of cover a, a lot of a lot of different issues. Um, yeah, come along on Saturday though. 23rd 25th 25th <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you get to try a coconut shy and see an exploding tadpole so i'm sold i want to say thank you so much to all three of you suzanne and michael and hugh i've learned massive in the last hour or so about nuclear energy um and i would absolutely encourage anyone who's around this saturday the 25th to head over to the Cambridge Festival and see you in person. Also, make sure to follow the Cambridge Festival on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and YouTube for more fascinating events 
and follow the Say That Again Slowly podcast for more conversations with this year's experts on the theme of power in all its forms. Thanks everyone for listening.